I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage that we will consider this morning. And you can find that passage in our pew Bibles that we have here on page 1821. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 16. But before we read that passage, I'll give us a, a little reminder, recap of where we are in this letter and what we considered last week. Last week we saw how the gospel always comes with a therefore, that we've passed this transition point in the letter of the Apostle Paul as he's moving now towards exhortations and the implications of the gospel in our life. And he showed us that there is a walk of life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and in particular, that worthiness is to walk in the unity of the Spirit, to walk in love, the unity that we have and we confess in our essential truths that we hold to. And we must walk in that unity, seeking that unity with all gentleness and humility. And this is what the Blessed Trinity calls us to, this oneness that we have together. Oneness. But as we will see here in the passage today, that Paul shows us that the oneness of the church does not erase the rich diversity that exists in the church. And so with that, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word from Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does it mean he ascended? Mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, thanks be to God. Well, loved ones, uh, as we see and consider this passage this morning, let us pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to bless us. Oh, Holy Spirit, you have inspired this text for our edification, for this very moment, this place and time where we are gathered here. Lord, we ask that you would now illumine our hearts, that you would equip us to understand 
and apply the truths of this passage. Soften our hearts to receive your word in its fullness. To your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everyone likes to receive gifts, especially gifts that are thoughtful and useful gifts, right? Gift giving is a way that we communicate love to each other. And especially when someone goes out of their way to give you something that truly benefits you, something that you really need, it humbles you, right? It reminds you that you are loved by somebody else, somebody else who's looking after you and caring for you and sees what you need. And usually love begets love. Those who receive love are more likely to give love to others or give gifts to others. We might think of this as a child, right? A child who grows up in a loving home with loving parents, showered by love day by day. Well, as they receive much love, it is more likely that child in life will give much love to other people, that they will grow up to be loving and giving individuals. Now, how does this apply to our text today? Well, Paul, he is showing us here in this passage that God has given us wonderful gifts of his love through his Son and by the Holy Spirit. And these gifts should humble us deeply because we do not deserve these gifts at all. The very opposite is what we deserve, and yet God still loved us, as we saw earlier, even though we were enemies. God has given us these gifts. And these gifts, they are thoughtful gifts, they are useful gifts, and a great benefit to us. We will see that. And since love begets love, Paul is arguing that as those who have received so much love, so many gifts of grace, we should give love to others, that we should use those gifts to serve one another in the church of Christ. And so, to see all of this this morning, we'll consider three points. First of all, the gift of the Son. Secondly, the gifts of the Spirit. And lastly, the gifts of each other. First, the gift of the Son. In verse 7, look at verse 7 with me. This, this verse here, it serves as a transition from what Paul was just talking about, what we considered last week in verses 1 through 6, but it also serves as a summary statement of what he's about to say in the rest of our passage. And so, I remind you that Paul has just described our profound unity in Christ, our oneness, that we are one together in him. God is one, and so he has called us to be one with each other. And through faith in Christ, we are one body, and we share in common the most important things in life. As he mentions, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God our Father. And because of that, we have a deep and profound unity and a oneness together. But we see in verse 7 that this unity does not erase diversity in the body of Christ. The one body does not deny that there are many members. As the Blessed Trinity, it, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons and yet one God, so the church is one and yet also many members with diverse gifts. And so the church is to reflect that reality of the Trinity 
one and yet many at the same time. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He emphasizes it. To each one of us in the body of Christ, each one of us receives a different measure of a gift from Christ for the purpose of serving each other in the body of Christ. All of us working together towards a greater actual unity and peace in the life of the church. And so we see that the oneness does not erase that diversity that exists in the life of the church. But before he goes on to elaborate about and in detail spell out what he means by the diversity of gifts and how they function in the body of Christ, first Paul shows us what the Son of God did in order to make this happen, in order to make this a reality. And so in that way, Paul in verses 8 through 10 circles back to the heart of the gospel to remind us what God has given to us, his very own Son. The reformer Martin Luther, he says this, that the foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, before you seek to follow him, you must first accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. And that's what Paul is showing us here in this first part. He's telling us how God has given us his own son. And so before we get on to talk about how we are to use our gifts for each other, following the example of Christ, let us consider what God has done in sending us his son. And Paul, he does this in verses 8 through 10 by quoting and interpreting for us Psalm 68 in light of Christ. And it's really interesting the way that Paul appropriates and applies Psalm 68 here. Uh, Psalm 68, uh, when you study it, Scholars see and identify that it is retelling the triumphant procession of God from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. In other words, it's this dramatic retelling about how God, after the Exodus event, taking his people out of Egypt, descended upon Mount Sinai, and then descended even further into the tabernacle to dwell with his people, and then from that place, led them onward through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and then in triumph over their enemies in that place, ascended to the mountain, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, to then reign and rule over his people with mercy and justice and in peace. And so, it is describing for us this victory parade that God led his people on into the promised land, up to Jerusalem, to reign in peace over them. And the psalm ends in verse 35 with this note of triumph, saying, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So now, let's think about this. How does Paul appropriate and apply this psalm and that message to Christ and his people. Well, in this way, he shows that Jesus fulfilled this pattern of descent before ascending from glory that he was once with with the Father down into the lowliness of our human existence in order to then lead his people 
to glory in a victory parade in order to then rule and give them blessings from that place. And so in a way, what Paul is showing us, it's Psalm 68 was pointing forward to how the Son of God would descend from the heights of glory to join us here in the wilderness of life, in our lowly state. And that descent was his incarnation when he became a man, took on our human nature, and God's very presence came to dwell with men. As John says in his gospel, the Word, referring to Christ, the Son of God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, is what John says in 1 John 14. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see that the Son descended from the heights of glory into our lowly state, but then he went even further lower, descending into death itself for us. And Paul refers to this descent of death, or descent of Christ into death and into the tomb being buried in verse 9 when he says that he went to the lower parts of earth. And so, paradoxically, it was there in the death of Christ and in the darkness of his tomb that our King Jesus triumphed over Satan, over our sin, and over the sentence of death that we all deserve. So in this way, Christ took captivity captive, is what he says in the text. In love, the Son of God paid the price with his own blood, with his own suffering, his own pain in our place, the price for our redemption, our emancipation, our liberation from sin, death, and the devil. And then Paul says that after his victorious resurrection from the dead, that Christ then ascended above all things into deep heaven, to the heights of glory again, to rule and reign from now Mount Zion in heavenly Jerusalem. And so we see that Christ in this way has fulfilled beautifully the, the storyline of Psalm 68. But don't we believe that the Son of God was always there with the Father in glory from eternity past, long before His incarnation and ascension? So why was this all necessary? Well, yes, He was always there with God the Father in glory before. So what is the difference now? Is this, that now the Son of God is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father in our humanity as our representative, as our covenant mediator. We see that before, in eternity past, before his descent, before his then afterwards ascension, he was always our maker, but now he is also our mediator. Before he stood in glory as our sovereign, but now he stands in glory as our savior and sacrifice for our sins. Before he sat there as our judge, but now he sits there as our justifier, the one who clothes us in his own righteousness. And so this is good news for us, that Christ has descended in order to save us and bring us with him in glory. By coming to us and for us, we have now the guarantee at the right hand of the Father that we too will go and be with him. For where the king goes, so his people will follow. Where the head goes, so the body will grow up and meet him in glory. 
Christ's victory over death and his ascent into glory secures our victory over death and secures our destiny to sit with him in glory and reign with him over all things. And so by faith we are found in him. We belong to him and all that he has won and conquered we now inherit as children of God. But not only that, not only that, Paul says here in this passage passage that from his holy sanctuary, now ascended into glory, Christ now gives gifts to his people, to his church. And in this way, our Lord Jesus fulfills Psalm 68 again, that last verse where it says, the one who gives power and strength to his people, now in his glory. He's giving power and strength to his people, and so we can say, blessed be the Son of God. God. And that leads us to our second point, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. So although the Apostle Paul here, he doesn't explicitly make mention of the Holy Spirit in verses 13, or 11 to 13, he does have in mind the third person of the Trinity here. It is implied. Why? Because we see that the gifts he mentions, well, they are men who are chosen, assigned, and anointed, filled by the Holy Spirit, to serve the church with the Word of God. And remember, as uh, John tells us in John 16, uh, that Jesus, as he was talking to his disciples before his death, before his resurrection and ascension, he was preparing them for the future, saying that, I will send the Holy Spirit, your advocate, your comforter, and he will guide you into all truth, he says and specifically through the Word of God. And so as we look at these gifts that Paul enumerates in verse 11, he says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, well, all of these gifts have something in common. They're all word-related offices. All of them were tasked or are tasked to proclaim the truth of God's Word by the Holy Spirit And so we see that through the ministry of men called and ordained to teach and preach the Word of God, this is how the Holy Spirit is guiding His church into all truth. So we see that by the Spirit, these gifts that Christ gives the church, what are they? They are men. Men called to serve in these offices. I have to admit, as I thought about this, I was kind of scratching my head thinking and asking myself of all the possible gifts that Christ in his glory could have given his church. He chose men. Men. And I thought, why, O King of glory, possessor of heaven and earth and all that is in them, master and emperor of infinite power and energy beyond our wildest dreams, why did you choose to give men to the church? Weak, sinful, broken, human beings. Why? What was your purpose, O Lord? And as I meditated on this question, I came to this. He did that in order to show that he is making a new humanity, not through natural propagation, but rather through the proclamation by the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. And so these men are sent out to spread the seeds of the gospel through preaching, proclaiming, and presenting that truth about Jesus. And those seeds are then carried by the Holy Spirit 
and powerfully implanted in the hearts of people. And that, by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, produces a new genesis, a new beginning, the beginning of the new creation in the hearts of believers. And so we remember, as God in the beginning created all things out of nothing by the power of His Word and through the perfecting agent of His Holy Spirit, so now, in the new creation that has broken into this world because of Jesus' death and resurrection, He is again, through the power of His Word, His Son, and through the agency of the Holy Spirit, making a new creation. And this is in part why we should long each week to come together as a body of Christ, to hear the preached Word, to study and read God's Word, to submit to it, because by doing so, we are submitting to the very energetic and effective power of God that He uses to regenerate and renew the hearts of believers, even through the weakness of men. His power and strength is made known through the power of His Word, which is living and active. You see, this is why Christ gave men to the church to be mouthpieces of God, heralds on His behalf. Through men, Jesus is filling the whole earth with His holy seed. That gospel begets eternal life in that way, producing children of God throughout the whole earth. We remember how Adam in the beginning, his task before God in part was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to the glory of God. Of course, he failed to fulfill that task, but now we see by the Spirit through the gospel ministry, Christ, the second and greater last Adam, is fruitful, is multiplying and filling the earth with his church. Christ has triumphed, and now God's children are not born, as John says in the beginning of his gospel, by flesh or by human will, but by God himself through the Holy Spirit, the power of his word. And in this way, the apostles and the prophets in the first century, as well as the evangelists and shepherd teachers of today, they are the propagators of the new humanity the new human race through the preaching of the gospel, united to Christ by faith. And so gospel ministers send forth through their words the seeds of the gospel, entrusting the Holy Spirit to, to give to him the ability, the strength to give the increase because all growth depends on God and the Spirit himself. And we see that Christ is expanding his church by the Spirit even through weak men, all to bring us to that great and glorious end that we have in Christ, to ascend with him in glory and sit with him in the heavenly places. And in his book, Sanctification, author Michael Allen, he says this, Christ ushers in glory and bestows grace upon his people, while grace repairs the fissured cracks of human integrity Glory orients us, informs us to our destined end. And in that way, through the preaching of his word, Christ is orienting us to that destined end to join him in glory. And he uses weak men to serve him in that task. But notice, as we move on, that these offices, these particular offices, are not the only gifts that Christ gives the church. And that brings us to our last point the gifts of each other. In verses 12 through 16, Paul shows us that the purpose of these word-related offices is to equip 
God's people her service to each other. So there is an equipping, a training to serve one another so that working together, all of us in unity will, will reach that unity of faith and become mature, stable, and secure in our convictions in the truth. We can see that in verse 16 especially where he says, in verse 16, from him or from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the body of Christ, it grows up and is built up in love when each part is working. When every member of the body of Christ is using its gifts to serve one another, speaking the truth in love. And this is what I want us to see this morning. That as we've seen, God the Father, what did He do? He sent us the gift of His one and only Son. And then the Son has given us His very Spirit, who equips and trains and sends forth men to serve Christ. And the Spirit gives to each of us the gifts of each other. So the people that are sitting here today, the people that are in front of you, behind you, and beside you in the pews, your brothers and sisters in Christ, They are Christ's gifts to you and for you. Therefore, if you reject your brother or sister, you are rejecting the very gift of Christ, the very gift of the Spirit, the very gift of God. Now, how is your brother or sister a gift to you for your well-being? How does it work? Well, in so many ways that I think I'm only beginning to understand and experience and comprehend. But for one, we are all Christians. And what does that mean, Christians? Well, it means that we are little Christ, little messiahs. In other words, we are anointed ones. We share in the anointing of Christ. And we find that even in Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 32. But what does that mean? It means that, that we share in the anointing of Christ, and therefore we have the gifts of Christ anointing in us, working through us. So when I go to my brother and sister in Christ, I am approaching one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, endowed with spiritual gifts for my edification. In practical terms, then, if I avoid my sister, who has the gift of encouragement when my heart is downcast, not only will she not be able to lift me up, but I am belittling the gift of Christ to me, which is my sister. If I keep away from my brother who has the gift of discernment and exhortation, when I need correction in my life, when I am in error because of the way I'm thinking, the way I'm acting, then I won't get that correction. I won't receive it from Christ through my brother. If life circumstances are challenging me and I'm not able to provide for my family or fix my car, or put food on the table, and I avoid my brother and sister in the church that, are, that have been gifted with generosity, well, then I'm avoiding the very generosity of Christ through my brother and sister. If I lose a loved one to cancer, my temptation, I know as I've meditated on this, my temptation would be, in a sense, to hide away from everyone else and bury myself in grief, kind of like a bear trying to hibernate to avoid the pain and the sorrow of it. But then again, I know that I would never overcome it. 
But what I really would need is what Christ would give me and send to me close brothers in the faith to lean on, to weep with, to sing songs with, to fight with, to embrace and cry with. Brothers, it will help me at last collapse and fall into the arms of the Father saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. You see, in my brother and sister, I find Christ for me, the presence of Christ for me in you. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each of us, we encounter the presence of Christ. And we receive His gifts for our well-being. And through each other, we build each other up. The Apostle Paul, he depicts this for us using the imagery of a human body. He shows us that like a natural body, like your very own body, that's made up of a variety of different parts and muscles and ligaments and cartilage and the wiring of your nervous system all working together so too is the body of christ which is one made of many interconnected parts and so we think of our own bodies each part each part is interdependent upon the other parts all of them serving their particular role in the stability structure and survival of the body we need all of the parts and organs and members of our body and we see that Christ here, he's, as the head of the body, he is providing and supplying all that his body needs to maintain unity in truth and produce love. And he provides it through each other, through the members of the body of Christ. And Paul also mentions that when the body is healthy and well-equipped, it is strong to def- defend itself from intrusion of error and deceit and cunning from crafty men, false teaching. In a sense, when the church is healthy, when the church is, has the gospel culture of speaking the truth in love, of, of proclaiming the truth to one another, of using its gifts and building each other up, when that is a healthy church, well, it has a healthy immune system that's able to defend itself from harmful viruses of false teaching that might come in and attack us. And Christ has given us each other and these gifts for each other to build each other up and strengthen each other in the faith. Now, what happens if you remove a vital organ from your body? I just found out last week, actually, that our brother Bill, uh, not too long ago, had a heart surgery where your heart was removed from your body for a time. Remarkable. 90 minutes, right? Uh, the surgeon removed that, your, your vital organ. That's no easy feat, right? The heart organ is not supposed to be in an ice chest on a table. It's supposed to be in the body, right? Connected to the arteries and sending blood throughout the body, both the heart and the body will fail very quickly if not sustained by the skill and the resources of the surgeon. And so, what makes you think, you who are a vital member of Christ's body, What makes you think that you can live outside of the body of Christ? It makes no sense at all. Christian, you better realize that if you are not a member of the body of Christ, an active, living, participating member of a true church, then you are kind of like an organ on ice. And that ice is getting thinner as it melts. You cannot survive apart from the body of Christ, and the body cannot function properly without you 
at work in it. We all literally need each other in the faith. It's not just a warm and fuzzy thing to say to make people feel wanted. Paul actually believes this. I believe this. We literally need each other to function well in the body of Christ. And Christ has given us each other as gifts for one another. So we've seen, loved ones, in this passage, the great love of God in giving us these great gifts. We've seen how the Father, He gave us His own Son. In the Son, He has given us the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us to each other. And so we are recipients of God's loving gifts. And now, through this text, the Holy Spirit is calling us to give ourselves over to and for one another to use all of the gifts that Christ has endowed us with to serve one another, to build each other up, to speak the truth in love to one another. And with the goal that on the last day we will then present ourselves to Christ, adorned in the beauty of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And Christ, as we know from 1 Corinthians 15, Christ will ultimately give us, present us over to the Father, When we arrive with Christ in glory, he will present his church as his glorious bride. And in effect, we might imagine him saying in the last day, Father, meet my beloved bride. Isn't she lovely? And the Father will in return, in effect, say, Son, you have done well. She is radiant in your glory. She is beautiful in justice and in truth and in love. Just as I chose her for you in eternity past, now I see her beautifully clothed with the Holy Spirit and full of love for you. This is the glorious end that we have to look forward to and that Christ has equipped us with all the gifts necessary to arrive. May we receive continually God's gifts by faith and in return serve each other in love until we arrive with Christ in glory. Amen. Let's pray. What amazing love, what gracious gifts you have bestowed upon us, your people. And Lord, we know that as recipients of your love and your grace, that it is imperative that we now respond with gratitude and thankfulness and in service to one another. You call us to walk in unity and in love, to use our gifts for the building up of your church. And we recognize that we depend upon each other and that we can find Christ for us, his presence for us, in and through our brothers and sisters. Lord, uh, instill within us this vital image of the body of Christ with all of its members and organs working together. Put within our hearts the burden and the privilege to serve one another in the name of Christ for your glory and put before us that final glory, that final day when we will arrive with Christ and be seated with him in the heavenly places. Lord, uh, equip us for that day. Strengthen us to serve one another in love. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.